Amen. Well, we finished a couple weeks ago, last week we had a guest speaker, but a couple weeks ago we finished a series on our new expanded core values. And if you're a member of Southside and missed any of those, let me encourage you to go back and listen to those so we're on the same page with who we are and where we're going. And if you've been visiting just in recent weeks, we've been out of our ordinary. We normally just preach consecutively through books of the Bible. And so I'm excited this morning to get back to the norm as we jump back into the book of Romans. It's been a while. We started around this time last year, but we've taken several breaks. And it doesn't get much better than Romans. I started our series on Romans with this quote from Luther, but we've all slept since then. Let me repeat it. Luther says about Romans, this letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It's well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It's impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and better it tastes. It's a rich letter. Let me encourage you to be reading it. Let me remind us where we've been up to this point. We're going to be in Romans 11, but where have we been in Romans? Well, Paul begins, he lays out his gospel and he shows us the problem of humanity. There's a lot of problems, but there's really one fundamental problem with humanity and that is idolatry. All people, Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews are under sin. All have fallen short of the glory of God because of sin. But then in chapter three, we have this, but, but now. But God, through Christ, has made a way for us to be declared in the right, justified by faith alone, reckoned as righteous. And so chapter 5, we have peace with God. In chapter 6 and chapter 7, we're now no longer under the power of sin. Chapter 8, no condemnation, secure in the love of God. And then comes chapters 9 to 11. That's where we're going to be. We'll be at page 890 if you're using one of our pew Bibles. And Romans 9 to 11 is tough. Some of the toughest, I think actually probably the toughest chapters in the whole New Testament. This is why a lot of people ignore it. When I was a brand new believer, I was in Houston doing sort of like evangelism and mission trips. And I went to, wanted to go, I was growing in the Lord, caring about the exposition of scripture. So I went to a church that was supposed to be an expositional church. And I think it was in some ways. And they were in Romans and I was so excited doing a, I don't remember how long he took, but it was Romans 1 to 8. He just said, I'm not even going to go there. I just saw recently some Lifeway curriculum, which is what we use. Lifeway does a lot of good things. But I was looking at some curriculum that they were taking classes through, and they just straight up skipped these verses, except for a little bit of chapter 10. Because <laughs> they're difficult. And it really is a unit. Romans 9 to 11 is a unit. In many ways, it's one long argument answering one main issue that begins in chapter 9, verse 6. Let's look at it. Romans 9, 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. That's the issue. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. The question is a question of God's faithfulness. And admittedly, it meant a whole lot more to them in the first century than it does to us today, just because we're removed by distance, but it should be just as important. Is God faithful? It's a question of the truthfulness of God's word. 
These are dense chapters. These are complicated chapters. In fact, as one New Testament scholar puts it, everything about Romans 9 to 11 is controversial. So this week and next week, we are going to be plowing through some of the deepest waters in the New Testament. Just so, you know, buckle up, bring your thinking cap. And then Romans 12 is going to take a turn. Romans 12.1 takes a turn in the book. So he's done a lot of gospel theology for 11 chapters. And then in 12.1, it takes a turn and it gets nitty gritty practical. So again, be reading ahead. It's going to be a good spring, good summer, likely part of the fall as we continue to plow through. So Romans 11, I'm just going to walk through these verses. The main point, do not doubt the divine. And the first verse here is the driving question, which really is similar to chapter 9, verse 6. Look at 11, 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Another way of saying, has God's word failed? And the idea here, has God totally rejected his people? Or has God completely rejected his people? Is God finished with ethnic Israel? One could see why that was a legitimate question, especially if we know our Bibles, right? Just think about what Israel had done. They had abandoned their king, crucified the Messiah, shouted, crucify him. There was a guilty robber named Barabbas. They said, you know what? Let him go. Put Jesus on the cross. They said, let his blood be upon our hands. Some of the most chilling words in the whole Bible. And the Jewish people said, we have no king but Caesar. Shocking. And then, of course, many Jews rejected Christ and many Jews rejected the church. And so it's a legitimate question to ask, well, is God completely done? Has God totally rejected Israel? It's a good question. The answer is no. He has not. God's word has not failed. God has not totally rejected Israel. Why should you care about this question? Well, again, because the very character of God is at stake. The truthfulness of God. God had made promises to Abraham. God had made promises to Israel. God had made promises to David. If he doesn't keep them, can he really be trusted? Maybe you were here in Romans 8. Remember Romans 8 and all those glorious promises of God is for us. Who can be against us? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Can we take those promises to the bank? That's the question. It's a hugely important question. So Paul gives five arguments for why God has not totally rejected Israel, but in fact has preserved a remnant. So the five arguments we're going to walk through are a personal argument, an election argument, an Elijah argument, a grace argument, and a hardening argument. So first, a personal argument for why God has not totally rejected Israel. Look again at verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says, not a chance. God forbid. May it never be. And it's proof that God hasn't totally rejected Israel. Look at me. I'm an Israelite. Philippians 3 says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Clearly, God hasn't totally rejected Israel because look at Paul. It's a personal argument. Second, he gives us an election argument for why God has not totally rejected Israel. Look at verse 2. God has not rejected his people 
whom he foreknew. God hasn't rejected the people whom he foreknew. And this word has a weight of controversy behind it. We talked about it in depth back in the fall in the sermon in Romans 8, 28 to 30. Here it is in the Bible. We've got to do something with this teaching. There's different ways to take it, but we can't ignore it, can't deny it. And there really are two main options for what this word means. And listen, both options are held by solid, godly, Bible-believing Christians. That's really important for you to hear. So listen, if you don't believe, you don't agree with what I'm about to teach you, that's okay. You can be a solidly orthodox member of Southside Baptist Church and not agree with the way the leadership takes this word, but you got to take something. You got to do something with it. So I want to make a case for what I think it means. Again, we did this in Romans 8, 28 to 30, on what this word foreknowledge means. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Well, what does foreknowledge mean? And again, there's really two evangelical Bible-believing options. The first option is what we could describe as the foresight view. And this is the idea that God, before he created, looked down the corridors of history and saw, foresaw, saw beforehand who would choose him of their own free will. So God, before he creates, he's all-knowing. He looks down the corridors of time and he sees who's going to choose him. And then God responds to their choice. And so in this view, really, people elect themselves and then God responds. The foresight view, very popular, very common view of what foreknowledge means. Man elects himself, God responds. The other view, and I'm going to tell you what I, I think this is the biblical view, is what we could call the for-love view. The idea is that God loved beforehand. And so before God creates, he loved some people, foreknew them, for-loved them, and on, based upon that choice, they will be saved. So God is the one then who chooses, and then those whom he chooses will respond. So you tracking with me? Foresight, for-love. Both totally viable options. We at the leadership of Southside just think that the Bible teaches that it's actually for love for a few reasons. I mentioned six reasons in the sermon in the fall. So if you want to dig in, you can go listen to that. Let me just reiterate three reasons why I think it means for love instead of foresight. First reason is the way the Bible uses it. So we're going to look at the definition of a word. What we ought to do is look at the full Bible context, the broad context. And that is the way the word no is used in the Bible. So for knowledge in the, in the Bible, no is a very intimate term. It means to set his affection on someone. It's an intimate term so much so that I think the very first usage of the word comes in Genesis chapter four, verse one, goes like this. Adam knew Eve and she conceived and bore Cain. Clearly that word no is quite intimate. When husbands know wives, babies are the result in the Bible. So knowing is an intimate word. In other words, it's not just knowing about certain events that would happen. It's an intimate knowing of persons. There's a ton more examples I can give, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to rehash all the times the word know basically means choose. Second reason why I think it's for love is how Paul uses this word in the immediate context. So first we look at the broad context, then we look at the immediate context. And he's used it a few times. Flip back over to chapter 8. Look at verse 28. 
Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those, so let me push pause here. I'm making a case that foreknow is the knowing of persons themselves, not knowing of events that would happen. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, these he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's that golden chain that is true for this group whom he's foreknew from eternity past to eternity future. What then shall we say, verse 31, to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against who? God's elect. It is God who justifies. So very clearly here to me, he's talking about people, right? And we see it, look back in chapter 11. He's going to use it this way a couple of times. 11.2, our verse at hand, God's not rejected his people whom he foreknew. But look down at verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant. That's whom he's foreknown. That's whom he's chosen. Chosen by grace. Look down a couple of verses at verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So you get the idea. Broader context, the word knows a very intimate word. It means to set his covenant love upon somebody. Second reason is the immediate context. He's talking about people. God foreknows people. He doesn't foreknow just future events. But then third, it doesn't really solve a problem. I think that the foresight view is often adopted, not because what the Bible teaches. Again, godly Bible people, believing people take that route. But I think a lot of times people adopt this view because they want to get God off the hook. They don't want a God who chooses some and not others. And so instead, they develop a theology where it's all dependent upon the human will. And we are the initiators of salvation. We are those who decide. And so they want to make, we're the ones that have the issue, not God having the issue. But I want to share with you how it actually doesn't solve that problem. It just kicks the, kicks the can down the road a little bit. Because, think about it, in this view, the foresight view, God still creates a world in which he has only chosen some right? So before creation, God looks down. This is the foresight view, the view that I don't think is right. God looks down the corridors of history and sees who will choose him. And then he responds to their choice. And then he predestines them based upon that choice. And then he creates. So you see how that's still problematic. God still creates a world in which not all are chosen. So I think we just don't worry about getting God off the hook and let the Bible define Bible words and say God chose some. He foreloved some. He didn't reject his people whom he foreknew. So foreknowledge is not what he foresaw, but whom he foreknew. Now this is deep waters. Took me months and months and months and months to wrestle through this, but let me encourage you. If you're a believer in Jesus, what does this mean? It means before the ages began, God knew you. Didn't know about you, didn't know some random group, knew you by name. He loved you. 
He determined to set his affection on you. So zooming out, has God's word failed? Paul asks, no. God has not rejected his people totally. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, whom he foreloved, whom he chose. God's promises have not failed because he never promised to save every one of them. Only those whom he foreknew. That's what verse 2 says. So that's the election argument. Got a personal argument, an election argument. Number three, the Elijah argument for why God hasn't totally rejected his people. It's there in verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Gives this illustration from the Old Testament. Elijah once thought he was all alone, the only one left, and God replies he's kept for himself a remnant. Not all of Israel has been unfaithful. I've kept some. In fact, I've kept 7,000. It's the old Elijah complex. You ever had that? You ever feel that way? It's only me. I'm all alone. Then God folds back the curtain and we realize we're never alone. Neither was Elijah. God's always doing more than we can see. He's always at work in myriads of ways and we're usually aware of very, very few of them. So God's not rejected his chosen people, those whom he elected and foreknew. Just like in Elijah's day, he has a remnant. He had a remnant then, he's got a remnant now. Fourth, we have a grace argument for why God hasn't totally rejected his people. Look at verse five again. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. God's word has not failed. God not, has not totally rejected all of Israel. He's always kept a remnant chosen by grace. God's grace is his gracious kindness to the undeserving. And the remnant are those whom God has kept. It's a part of the whole. God only ever promised to save a remnant. He never promised to save all. Only those whom he foreknew, only those whom he chose, right? That's why in chapter 9, verse 6, let me read it again. It starts off our section. It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, right? So there's two Israels. There's an Israel within the Israel. In other words, there's a remnant that's part of the whole, part of them. That'll be important next week. So he says, there's a remnant chosen by grace. They're not chosen because of anything in them. They're chosen by pure grace. Love the way he put it over in chapter 9, verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It does not depend on the human will. It does not depend on human exertion. It's all of God and his mercy. God hasn't rejected his people. There's a remnant chosen by grace. God never promised to save every Israelite. So his word hasn't fallen. He's still faithful. And that was really his argument in chapter 9. I know it's been a while. Look back at 9-6. That's what he's saying. He's saying, no, God's word hasn't failed. He never promised to save everybody. That was never part of his promise. Chapter 9, verse 6. Let's read those verses. 9-6 to 13. 
Notice the, notice the argument he's making to show that God is faithful. It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated." God's word hasn't failed because there's an Israel within an Israel. In other words, a remnant within Israel. Not Ishmael, but Isaac, he says. Not Esau, but Jacob. God always only promised to save those whom he foreknew. So his word has not failed. Look at verse 6. 11 verse 6. But... If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. I love the clarity of this verse. Clear definition of grace. If it's on the basis of grace, it cannot be on the basis of works. Or you've stripped grace from grace. Grace is opposed to works of any and all sorts. It's opposed to earning. If you try to smuggle in an ounce of works, grace has lost its definition. Listen to Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God's really concerned that in this plan of salvation, he is the only one that can receive glory. By grace, through faith, not works. By the way, this is another reason why that whole foresight view that I don't hold to, and this is another reason it doesn't work. Because faith, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, is also a gift. So it's not that he looks down the corridors of time to see who would have faith. Well, faith is a gift. He's the one who gives the gift of faith. You know, Paul, we've seen in Romans 3 and 4, a lot of times he's contrasted what? Faith and works. Because he's been talking about justification. We're declared in the right, not on the basis of what we do, works, but on the basis of faith. He doesn't do that here, though, does he? What's he contrasting here? It's not faith and works. It's grace and works. Because he's not talking about justification. He's talking about election. So if election was based upon anything in us, even foreseen faith, then it's on the basis of works. That's what he's trying to, that's the point he's trying to make. That's why he says in chapter 9, verse 11, and we just read it, talking about these twins, they're twins, they have one dad, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. The older will serve the younger. 
If you add in works, it's no longer grace. Salvation is by grace, all of grace from first to last. I love the way Acts chapter 18 puts it. 1827 says this. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Well, if faith is a gift of God, then we know that no one believes except through grace. Or here's how 2 Timothy 1.9 puts it. God saved us and he called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Or Ephesians 1, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. See, God's sovereignty in salvation should make grace amazing. In fact, the author of the hymn, Amazing Grace, John Newton, would agree with everything I'm saying. He held the forelove view of foreknowledge. We really didn't contribute anything to our salvation except the need for it. Grace is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. I wonder, have you grasped the significance of the fact that salvation is all of grace? From eternity past to eternity future, grace. Have you experienced biblical grace this morning? What exactly are you trusting in? If it's anything besides Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, the basis is off. Grace is no longer grace. The Lord invites you this morning to experience grace through Jesus Christ. That's the grace argument. Fifth, we have the hardening argument for why God has not totally rejected his people. Look at chapter 11, verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So as the elect obtained it, the rest were hardened. Again, the elect are those whom God has chosen. The same group he mentioned in chapter 11, verse two, God hasn't rejected his people whom he foreknew. The same group of the golden chain of Romans 8, 28, those who were predestined and foreknown, predestined and called and justified and one day will be glorified. And then he points to a few passages of scripture to prove his point. He points to Isaiah 29 and then Deuteronomy 29 and then Psalm 69. The elect obtained it and the rest were hardened. The elect obtained what though? Well, again, has Paul used that word, that language in the immediate context? Actually, he has. Flip back to Romans chapter 9, verse 30. What did they attain? They attained a right standing with God by grace. Look at 930. What then, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, there's this word, have attained it? 
That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. And then look down at chapter 10, verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. They did not obtain what? They did not obtain a right standing with God. Why? Because they pursued it the wrong way. They pursued it as if it were based on works. They were trying to earn their salvation. This is the problem with the Pharisees. Rather than if it were based on faith, they thought they could earn a right standing with God rather than receiving a right standing with God through the gift that comes through Jesus Christ. If you're here and you think that God will only love you if you work hard enough, if you can attain your own righteousness, if you can perform well enough, if you can live more lives, then you've got it all wrong, friend. That's not Christianity. Don't seek to attain a right standing with God wrongly. You'll end up hardened. You must approach God on God's terms, and God's term is grace. There are only, only two letters that distinguish Christianity from every other religion. Do or done. Christianity is based on the done work of Christ, the finished work of Christ. Grace, not works. Trust in Christ and receive the forgiveness of sins. Israel wrongly sought this right standing. And as a result, they were hardened. And we don't need, need to think of God's hardening activity as if he's going in and hardening hearts. It's more of a letting go. It's a judicial activity. It's what we've seen in Romans. Flip over to Romans chapter 1. That's how he starts the chapter. What does it mean to be hardened? Chapter 1 is talking about the sinfulness, the depravity of mankind. And in 124, therefore God gave them up. In the lust of their hearts. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. It's a judicial hardening. God says to rebellious people, if you will not turn to me, I will let you go. If you won't pursue me the way that I have ordained through grace, not through works, then you will end up hardened, he says. And we shouldn't think that people who are hardened to the gospel are necessarily angry necessarily hostile to Christianity. They just don't care. They're obtuse. They're apathetic. They just are bored by the things of God. That's what it means to be hardened. So that's five reasons he gives us here for why, verse one, has God rejected his people? No. Very clearly, no, he hasn't. Now, this is the first 10 verses. We got more weightiness coming. And I know this is heavy. Maybe new to some of you. You may be angry right now. I understand that. I was angry when I was first exposed to this teaching as well. Don't be mad at me. I often say, I don't write the mail. I just try to deliver it faithfully. But this is heavy. I understand. So let me just encourage you to wrestle with it. The key is, though, you've got to wrestle with the text, right? This stuff is here. Romans 9 is in our Bible. Romans 11 is in our Bible. We can't just dismiss it. I like the way Augustine puts it. He says, if you believe what you like in the Gospels, and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. We want to be those that are rubbed by scripture and adjust accordingly. And I mentioned I, I wrestled for months and months. And I'm a really curious guy, so I spent a lot of time 
So if you didn't have a lot of time, and I mean, it would have been a year that I wrestled with this truth. But Romans 9, Romans 8, Romans 9, Romans 11 were the, the, just the clear teaching of Scripture where I end up holding to this view. But there were two other verses that really, for me, pushed me over the edge. And I was wrestling with this whole question, is God sovereign in salvation? I want to share them with you. The first comes from Acts 13. says this, Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Here's the key. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I tried every translation I could. I thought, surely he doesn't mean that. Surely he got those in the wrong order. Because that's what we would say, isn't it? We would say, as many believed were appointed to eternal life because, see, we're Americans and we just are, by nature, man-centered people. It's not what Luke says. It says, as many as were appointed to eternal life, they are the ones who believed. It's really similar teaching from Jesus in John 10. By the way, this is what New Testament scholar Doug Moo says. He says, God does not choose us because we believe, but that we may believe. Faith is a gift. Jesus in John 10, something very similar. He says, he says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Jesus says, the sheep hear my voice. The goats, they don't hear my voice. Again, what would we say? We would say they are not his sheep because they do not believe. What does Jesus say? They do not believe because they're not of my sheep. You see the difference? They are not part of those whom the Father has given to the Son. Friends, this truth should not lead to warring, but to worship. Not to conflict, but to comfort. Not to debate, but to delight. Not to polemics, but praise. We serve a God who pursues. A God who really is sovereign from beginning to end. A God who comes after his bride, overcoming any and all obstacles that might stand in his way. He's accomplished everything needed to be his bride. If you're a believer, you are not an afterthought to God. He knew your name and had plans to create you and redeem you before he even created the world. To pursue you and to save you and he promises to keep you. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This truth is hard, I understand. Wrestle long and hard. And when you come outside of the other side of the wrestling, it ought to produce a confidence that cannot be shaken. Not in ourselves, but in our sovereign God, a confidence. Because if this God is for us, who can be against us? It should produce a hope knowing he will finish what he started should humble us. God saved us in spite of us. And it should cause us to pray for unbelievers. That's why Paul is such a good example in Romans 9, 1 to 5, and Romans 10, 1 to 3. Why? Because we serve a God that really can't answer our prayers. 
God really does save. If we really believed in free will, we could not pray that God would save people, right? Because if God got involved, it would tamper with their free will and they wouldn't be free anymore. We just would have to pray, God, would they, would they wisen up? Would you make them smarter so that they would see? But no, you can't make them smarter because that would then tamper with their will. No, we pray, God, save them. God, open their eyes. God, remove the blinders. God, awaken the dead. Should cause us to share the gospel again. That's what Paul's so burdened as he opens these chapters. He wants to see Israelites saved. So we share the gospel knowing that all we do is just faithful to the message. We plant the seeds. Others come along in water, but it is God who gives the growth. This message of Jesus, we share it and it becomes the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And if you don't believe yet, this should cause you to believe. Say, wait, what if God didn't choose me? Then you won't believe. But if you believe, it's because God's at work. You're not here by coincidence. If you're interested in the things of God, it's because he's already been pursuing you. Trust him. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. You would not even be interested if he were not already initiating his work in you. Come to Christ and join us as we sing, he sought me when a stranger. J.I. Packer says, we really all agree that God is sovereign in salvation for two reasons. Number one, we all thank God for saving us. All of us deep down in our hearts know that God saved us. We know deep down we would not have saved ourselves. Second, I already mentioned, but we pray. We pray for the conversion of others. We ask God to save people. We ask God to open eyes. And so by our thanksgivings and by our intercessions show that we believe in God's sovereignty. Packer says it this way, on our feet, we may have arguments about it, but on our knees, we are all agreed. Church, God keeps his promises. He has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God's word has not failed. God is faithful. He can be trusted. Do not doubt the divine.